about fear is that it, it, it warps our perspective. Like it literally like changes your senses, you know, and even that, you know, some, some of the things were worse than others. But, it, you know, it's just that idea of like you don't know what's in there and like you don't know the things that, that you're touching and what's going on. And it, and it just has this way of messing with you. And uh, so we are in our series, Haunted, and uh, this week specifically, we are talking about fear. And uh, what is fear? Fear is an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that something or someone is dangerous and likely to cause pain or threat. Now, if you take fear and you go an extra step, it turns into a phobia. And a phobia is an extreme or irrational fear of or aversion to something. And uh, so anyways, I was looking up some of these irrational fears, some of these phobias, and uh, you would be surprised as to how many different phobias there are. Like, someone, this has to be their job of, like, working with therapists and being like, hey, like, right now and all of, like, the phobias that all the people have. So I'm going I'm to list some real phobias. The first one is nomophobia. Nomophobia is the fear of being without your mobile phone. Hey, how many of you have experienced this? Like this excessive anxiety, like you're going out the door and you're like, where's my phone? Like, how, how am I going to live life? How am I going to survive the next 45 minutes without my phone? And, uh, and there's something, I'm going to see how many of you are honest this morning. There's something, if you've experienced this, it's called phantom vibration syndrome. All right? It's, this is what it is. Your phone vibrates. You reach in your phone, you pull out your phone, you realize you don't have any missed calls. You don't have any missed texts. There's no alerts. Your brain was just telling you to reach in there because you're so used to doing it. And so like, you got this alert. You really thought that you felt it vibrate. It didn't vibrate at all. And this actually, this, this same experience happens with people when they have a limb amputated. Okay, so they'll lose a limb and then they'll reach down to like scratch their leg and their leg's not there anymore. But think about that. Like we are so addicted, like so often we're pulling out our phones and checking it that when you don't do it for a few minutes, your brain's like, hey, I think you should do it, you know, and all of a sudden it feels like it's vibrating and it's not actually. All right, this next one, xanthophobia, fear of the color yellow. Um, I, this one makes no sense to me. Like, I'm just picturing someone, like, driving down the road and be like, school bus! Like, you know, just like, it's yellow! You know, like, keep those, keep those lilies away from me. Um, this next one, ephibiphobia, fear of teenagers. You perceive adolescence as out of control, dangerous, and rude. I, there's a little bit of truth to this one. Like, I'm, I'm picturing myself when I was a teenager, and, like, I was a vandal. Like, that description, it, like, perfectly fits. And then the last one we got is decidophobia, fear of making decisions. There's, the, there's this, this lie that more choices is always better. It's not. Like, I, have you ever gone grocery shopping? I hate the yogurt aisle. There is seriously like 97 options. And it's like, I don't, I just want some yogurt. Like, why do you give me so many choices? I kind of get like frozen in. I love going to Aldi. Okay, Aldi's got like three choices. You got like Greek yogurt, regular yogurt, or like some kind of like tricks sugary yogurt. You know, and then you like can go all the way through Aldi in like seven and a half minutes, and I've got enough food for like two and a half weeks. And so Aldi, simplicity, I love it. I want, I want you to think for a second of a time when you were like most afraid. Because most of us can probably think of a moment and, and like you're brought back to like what was happening, how you were feeling, the emotion in that time. Um, for me, this is an instance when I was about six years old and there was a wasp nest underneath our front steps. 
And so my dad had the bright idea of like, we're going to go take it down. We're going to go destroy it. And so he recruited me and my two older brothers. So he gave Caleb a hose. I don't remember what he gave Gabe, and he gave me a fly swatter. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking like, a fly swatter? Like this isn't, this is meant for flies. It's not meant for things that like attack you back. And so, like, I, my mind is just going all over the place. I'm like, what am I going to do with this thing? And even at six years old, I'm pretty sure I was thinking, like, don't they make sprays that you can stand, like, 30 yards back and just, like, spray it? But we were going to do it the old school way. And so he gives me this fly swatter. I remember just, like, all the color drains from my face. Like, I'm just rigid, and I'm just, like, fear-stricken. I'm like, it's nice knowing you, Mom. You know, like, if, if I make it out of this alive, you know, I'm probably never going to look the same. I'm going to be so deformed from all of the bites that I get from these wasps. And, and so we, we go in there, and I'm like, this is not, you know, a mission. This is just straight suicide. And uh, so, so we go in there. And uh, I'm probably standing really far back, you know, I'm like swinging with the fly swatter. I'm, I didn't even get stung once. I was probably too far away. You know, I was probably thinking I was doing something and I actually wasn't at all. But you, you still remember that moment, you know, when you think of those stories or those instances where you were afraid, like you're just drawn back into the fear of that moment. And uh, there's something that we have all experienced in the last couple of years. We're kind of out of the thick of it now, covid and so we can talk a little bit more jokingly or freely about it. Um, but just because something has been polarized doesn't mean that it's political, okay? COVID, 100%, was definitely politicized. And, uh, and I'm thinking back of two years ago when Amy and I came here. This is the thick of it. And some of you won't admit this, but I know it's true. I think some of you didn't like Amy and I very much because we wore masks on a Sunday. And you, like some of you were thinking, like, those sheep, like, they'll just do whatever they're told, and, like, you know, they are so afraid. And um, really, that wasn't the reason. Amy and I were trying to live out the principle of Romans 13.1, which says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. And so submitting implies that you disagree on some level. Otherwise, there'd be no reason or, or excuse to actually have to submit. You'd just be going along with something that you agree with. So COVID was real, people died, but there was also a lot of people who didn't die, but they stopped living. You know what I mean? Like it was a real thing, but, but they just stopped living completely because of it. And the other day, I was driving, and it was early in the morning, there wasn't many cars on the road, and I look over, and the car next to me, there's this guy, just him in the car, windows are up, he's got a mask on. And I'm kind of thinking, like, who, who are you protecting? There's nobody else with you. Like, you're just by yourself, you know, alone in this car with a mask on. And I remember, again, back when we were in the thick of it, I remember people saying, like, oh, I feel naked without my mask when they weren't wearing it sometimes. And it was just, a, and I never liked that. Like, it was just so quickly, you know, we kind of adjusted to this new uh, way of living. But there was a lot of people that they withdrew, not just a little bit, but they withdrew completely and they were just fear-stricken because of it. And now we're seeing a lot of, now on kind of the other side as we're coming out of COVID, we're seeing a lot of people with mental health issues because out of fear, they just completely pulled themselves back. Second Timothy 1.7 says, For the Spirit of God that He gave us does not make us timid or fearful, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So when fear is driving us, we know that it is not the Spirit of God, which brings up the question, then who... Or what is driving that fear? Another story made me think of Noah's three years old at this point. Amy and I are living in St. Peter. I'm on the roof. I'm cleaning the dryer vent. 
and uh, the gutters, you know, getting the, the roof all set. Noah's outside playing. He's supposed to stay in the side yard. And, uh, and Noah's just, Dad, Dad, Noah, I'm, I'm up on the roof, okay? You need to leave me alone. Any of you, like, very task-oriented? So when someone tries to pull you away from your task, you get annoyed. That's what was happening, you know? And so, like, every, every 30 seconds, Dad, Dad, I, you know, Noah, you just got to, I'm on the roof, okay? And, okay, and so he goes back to playing. So I'm on the roof. All of a sudden, I hear again, Dad, Dad, but this time it's really close. And I turn around, and Noah's on the roof. And this wave of parental panic comes over me, you know, and I'm thinking about all the worst-case scenario of things. You know, he could have, you know, fallen, and his leg could have gotten trapped and, and cranked in a ladder. He could have gotten to the top and tried to crawl and fallen off. And, and it, you know, and my mind is just going all over the place. And I look at him, and he's just got this big grin. He's so proud because <laughs> he climbed up this ladder, and he is on the roof. And so out of my fear... My natural reaction was, I, I want him to be fearful also. Like, I want him to realize what he just did, and I want him to feel the same way that I feel. And I really believe it was the Holy Spirit in this moment calmed me, and, and I had a decision to make. I could either pass that fear on to my son, or I could react in a different way. And so instead, God controlled that anger in me, or that fear in me, and I was able to just say, Noah, man, you are so brave. Like that, you know, that was, that took a lot of courage to be able to do what you did. Like you're, you're so strong. And then I threw in a couple of like subtle, like, just remember it's my ladder. So you have to ask me permission next time to use it. And, you know, some, some subtle things, uh, some subtle things like that. Uh, but, you know, does it seem like fear follows you wherever you go? Like maybe it's because you're the one bringing it, you know? So if like every situation you go into you just have that fear, like maybe you are the person that is bringing it, or are you a person that dispels fear? Like people love it because you come into a situation and you just bring this calmness, you just bring this peace with you wherever you go. Parents, are you teaching kids wisdom or are you instilling fear into them? Like are you teaching them to play it safe and always letting them know the worst case scenario? Like what is that doing to them? You know, especially when we teach our boys to always play it safe, all they ever hear is be careful, and then they grow up, and then as a society, we're like, where are all the real men at? They're hiding. They're being careful. They're playing it safe, just like all of society told them to their entire lives. And so when Noah was ready to go back down, he gets to the ladder, and he goes, whoa, I'm high up. No, now the fear starts setting into him. And I was like, hey, you climbed up here. You can climb back too. And uh, so some of you are like, either you're kidding or you're a terrible parent. <laughs> all right, on to Elijah. Elijah, he was a prophet, and nobody liked prophets. Uh, God used prophets to uh, call people back to repentance. Turns out, people really don't like to be told that they're doing things wrong. They don't like to be called back into repentance. And so, uh, when you tell them that, uh, throughout the Bible, we see that people kill you. And so, so, for prophets, prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah, they were sawn in two. That's how they died. Not a great way to go. Countless prophets were killed by sword. Another way that a lot of prophets went was death by stoning. And uh, so as a job, it had terrible job security. You know, being a prophet was not really that fun. Very easy market to enter, though, constant job openings. Uh, now, Elijah, he, he wasn't just, some of you got that. Elijah wasn't just any prophet, all right? In, in Matthew chapter 17, we see this. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, led him up to a high mountain by themselves, and there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them 
Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Okay, Elijah was not a B-list prophet. Okay, he's like, he's one of the big dogs. And in the book of James, there's this verse that says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. This verse is talking about Elijah. Okay, it then references how he prayed that it wouldn't rain. And guess what? It didn't rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed for it to rain and it rained. So during this time, the kingdom of Israel is split. You've got the northern kingdom, this is Israel, and uh, King Ahab, he's the king, and he was the son of the previous king, son of King Omri. And King Omri, he took control by military coup. He grabbed some soldiers, killed everyone in the palace, and deemed himself king. And the Bible says this about Omri. He says, Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. Like, that was his legacy. That's what his son Ahab was inheriting. Like, how would you like that as you're kind of like one sentence in the Bible, like, you are more evil than everybody else. So anyways, not a good guy. Um, King Ahab takes over. So that's the northern kingdom. Then we have the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom is Judah, King Jehoshaphat. So now King, Je King Ahab, he goes and he marries a Sidonian princess by the name of Jezebel. And uh, there's a reason you don't hear many people named Jezebel. All right? <laughs> Some of you are like, I don't really know a whole lot about Jezebel. I'm just pretty sure that name is off limits. Like, that didn't make it into my top five when I was trying to pick out baby names. And uh, Jezebel, she introduced uh, Baal, or Baal is the way that you actually say it, worship. And uh, one of the reasons that the Bible says you're not supposed to be unequally yoked. So if you're a Christian, okay, if you're a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, you should not be in a relationship with someone who does not have the same beliefs and lifestyle. That is not also a disciple of Christ. Because we have this tendency to think, well, I got the power of God in me, and so I'm going to draw this person up. And, you know, I'm going to make this person who I'm really attracted to, uh, you know, then they're going to become a Christian too. But what happens more often than not is this person actually pulls this person down and influences this person away from God. This is exactly what happened with King Ahab and Jezebel. So Jezebel, she comes in, she introduces Baal worship. She has God's prophets killed. It says, while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah, like the one faithful person left in the palace, had taken a hundred prophets, hid them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. During this time, then Elijah prophesies, and he says, hey, it's not going to rain because you've turned away from God, you've turned towards idol worship. And then Elijah goes into the wilderness to hide. About three years later, Elijah, God tells Elijah to go pay a visit to King Ahab. Now, during this time, Ahab and Jezebel, they've been looking everywhere. They've been trying to find Elijah. In fact, they made the nation swear on penalty of death that none of them knew where he was or none of them were able to find him either. Now, how would you feel if God told you to go confront the person who was trying to murder you? How would you feel? My guess is most of us, okay, a little bit of fear would start kind of rising up and we'd start getting a little bit nervous. And so Elijah does it. He goes and reveals himself to Ahab. And uh, Ahab's like, is this you? He goes, you troubler of Israel. Like this is the phrase that he uses in the Bible. And Elijah goes, I'm not the problem. Like you, you are the one who turned God's people to worship Baal. And so Elijah says this, I want you to meet me at Mount Carmel. So Mount Carmel, here's an interesting thing. It's, it's near the Mediterranean Sea. And so during, over in this area, this would be the most drought-resistant because it's near the ocean. So even though there's a drought going on, it would still be getting moisture you know, from the ocean. And so this would still be probably the most fertile place. 
Baal was the god of fertility, also referred to as the lord of rain and dew. And so Elijah, he is setting the stage here for something big. So he's like, hey, let's go to this place where, you know, even though everything else looks pretty rough, let's go to this place where it's the most fertile of anywhere, and uh, we're going to have kind of a, a standoff here. And Elijah says, oh yeah, and invite everyone. Bring Israel. Bring them on in. Uh, those 400 prophets of Baal, bring them. Uh, those, uh, those other 400 prophets of Asherah, I want you to bring them too. Bring the whole crowd. So Ahab agrees, and he sends out messages. And so we get to Mount Carmel, the stage is set for this epic showdown, and we get to 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord's God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Basically what he's saying, make a choice. Stop being lukewarm. You know, and the people are like, well, we still want to see what's going to happen here. So they remain quiet. Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Go get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. You call on the name of your God, I'll call on the name of my God. The God who answers by fire, he's God. Simple enough. Then all the people said, what you say is good. They're like, yeah, we want to see what happens here. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choosing one of the bulls, prepare it. There's so many of you. And he goes, call in the name of God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull, given them, they prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. They said, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah begins to taunt them. And this is pretty enjoyable. Like, I would have loved to have been Elijah in this moment and kind of like taunt them. He goes, shout louder. Surely he's a god. Maybe he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder, and they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. And so this kind of practice was forbidden in the Old Testament. God's like, no, this, this isn't how you get my attention, by slashing yourself and, and blood. And we have this tendency to look at the Old Testament, and we're like, man, those people were crazy, like the stuff that they did. And, and this stuff is happening nowadays. It really is. You guys know who Megan Fox is? Okay, she was dating or engaged or married to this guy at Machine Gun Kelly. She was on an interview, on an interview, like on the news. And in this interview, and I quote, she said, we do consume each other's blood on occasion for ritual purposes only. Like this is happening nowadays. Like this is not just something that was Old Testament 3,000 years ago. Moving on, it says, midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response. No one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel's descended from Jacob, to whom the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood, and he said, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering. Now remember, they're in a drought during this time. So not only is this simply excessive, you know, that they're dousing it in water, this is also costly, you know, and, but he really wants to make a point. And he says, do it again. They did it again. He says, do it a third time. They ordered it, and they did it a third time. So the water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. He said, the Lord, the God of Abraham, 
Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel. I am your servant to have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that they are turning their hearts back again. And then it says, The fire of the Lord fell down and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Like everything, everything was just demolished, disintegrated, turned into dust, burnt up. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. And they seized them, and Elijah had brought them down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them there. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain started falling. And Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came to Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. This is really interesting what's happening right here. Have you ever heard the phrase, gird up your loins? All right, this is it's like old phrase found in the Bible, and that's what he's doing here. Because basically they wore robes, or basically like dresses, and so they'd grab it, pull it between their legs like this, and then stick it into their belt. That way they had their legs and they could run or move faster. And so Elijah does this. The rain's coming. He girds up his loins, and it says that he outran the chariot. Like God gave him like supernatural speed and power, and he's outrunning the chariot. But the imagery here is so powerful. You have the prophet of God running before King Ahab, and you have the presence of God coming in this thunderous rainstorm coming behind him. Like it was this imagery of this is what it was supposed to be like, King Ahab, You were supposed to follow God, and when you do, you have got this prophet leading the way before you. You're coming in your chariot, and the presence of God is coming behind you. This is what it was supposed to have been like. So they get to Jezreel. Now we get to Jezebel. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. And it says that Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. What is he afraid of? Like after all the stuff that he just saw, like Elijah just saw God perform this, this miraculous thing, like fire came down, burnt everything up, They just defeated several hundred false prophets. He just proved to Israel that God is real and Baal is fake. And at your highest point, fear will present itself. At your highest point. How many of you remember seeing or hearing about the infamous Oscar incident between Will Smith and Chris Rock? Okay? If you want to see an extremely awkward minute of television, you can go ahead and YouTube it later. I'll summarize it. Chris Rock, the host, made a joke about Jada Smith, Will Smith's wife. Will then went on stage and forcefully slapped Chris Rock across the face while everything was happening. And uh, then minutes later, Will Smith wins the title for Best Actor. He goes up and kind of gives this, uh, you know, acceptance speech. But he mentioned what Denzel Washington whispered to him right as he came off the stage after slapping Chris Rock. And he said this, he said, at your highest moment, be careful, the devil will come for you. And it's true, at your highest point, fear and the devil will present itself. So Elijah, afraid, runs. He goes into a journey into the wilderness, a day's journey. 
he sits down under a juniper tree, and he requests death. He's like, I want to die. Just give, giving up, like completely defeated. And, and there's a lot of things that are going on right now. So there's, there's this internal stressor of him trying to remain faithful to God. There's a rejection of God's laws, you know, that the Israelites are doing. Public worship was divorced from public life, the tearing down of altars, you know, and we, we see a lot of that in our country right now too, the separation of church and state. You know that our founding fathers were never worried about the church overtaking the country. They were worried about the, the government taking control of the churches. There was suppression of truth going on. Prophets were being put to death. There was a scarcity of obvious believers. And so he's feeling like he's the only one. Fear will make you think that you're alone. And once you are isolated, you will lose because your willpower is only going to last so long. And fear is insatiable too. Like it won't be satisfied. Sometimes we think, well, yeah, I'm afraid of this thing, but you know, it's not going to multiply. Yes, it will. It'll multiply and it'll feed into other areas of your life. And so Elijah goes from this insane high to all of a sudden this insane low. And what is God's response? It says, all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Cake, water, and sleep. God knows when you're hangry. And so the, the angel repeats this process again with Elijah because he needs to restore his energy. And Elijah travels 260 miles. And then listen to what happens. This is so special. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and a powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. The Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. You see, Elijah's indictment of Israel was also a plea for God to judge them. He was saying, I want you to judge them with wind and rock and earthquake and fire. Elijah's like, wipe them out, God. I'm tired of them. I'm tired of this life. And God says, no, I'm in the gentle whisper. I'm in the silence. But when fear is present, silence isn't peaceful. Because all the distractions from that fear are no longer there. You're face-to-face -face with your situation. You're face-to-face -face with yourself. And God tells Elijah, go back. Go back. Your job isn't done yet. I want you to stop running and it's not enough that we just identify our fear. We actually have to face it. Like, do you know what the treatment is for people who have PTSD? It's exposure therapy. They don't say suppress it, run from it, don't think about it. They actually start exposing and they say, hey, we're going to walk through these memories together. We're going we're to start having you have control of your past and the memory. We're going to expose you more and more to these things. There was a story. This is when I was a brand new Christian. I was in Duluth studying civil engineering at the time. And uh, like I said, brand new Christian. At this point, um, everything in my mind was logic. 
you know, math, science, physics. That was all the classes I was taking. That was how my, my natural personality is kind of wired. And I just become a Christian, and God says, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expose you to some spiritual experiences that you're not going to have any explanation for. And then from that, I'm going to learn, and I'm, I'm going to teach you some things from that. And so one day I was studying Calculus 3, and all of a sudden, uh, the, the presence of God comes into the room like I've never felt him before to this day. The presence of God was just so overwhelming. I had to close my book, which I didn't mind, and, uh, and I was just like, God, I, I don't know what's going on. I feel your presence. This is really cool. Is there something you want me to do or something you want to tell me? And uh, moments later, an almost equally feeling uh, of evil creeped its way into the room, just this evil presence. And now I'm like, I don't know what's going on. And, and, I, and so I just begin praying. And in the corner of the room, I can feel this evil presence. Have you ever had it where you know someone behind you is watching you? Like, you can't see them, but you know someone's there, and like the, the hair's standing up on the back of your neck. And so that was the feeling I had. So I close my eyes, and as I close my eyes, I can still see the room. And in the corner is this shadowy, dark figure with red eyes. There's this demon over in the corner of this room. And I'm like, this can't be real. So I'm, go- I'm doing this. Like, I'm like opening and closing my eyes, like trying, trying to like be like, is this a dream or something? And then what ensues what is spiritual warfare. And it's a term, you know, you maybe heard it, but if you've never experienced it, you're never really going to fully know what it is. But it was this spiritual battle, and I felt like this demon was pulling on one side and God was pulling on this other side, and I felt like I was going to, like, implode and get ripped apart at the same time. And this really only happened for probably moments or seconds. It felt like it was eternity. And finally, it was like this, this demon, like, let go and, and left and I was just like, oh my gosh, it was a crazy experience. That demon continued to visit me. Happened a couple more times. The last time was I was at church, and we were having a worship night. And I came home, was full of the presence of God. I was walking home to my apartment with my Bible. And I walk into my bedroom, and I open the door. And sure enough, I can feel that exact same presence in the corner of the room. And I took my Bible, and I threw it on my desk, and I said, have fun watching me sleep. And I went and laid down, and I turned my back, and that demon never visited me again. And God taught me two things from this experience. Number one, God got there first. Every time, God's presence was there first, and I was full of God's presence. But number two, the enemy was trying to use fear and intimidation to change the route that I was on, because it was during this time that God began to tell me, I don't want you to be a civil engineer. I want you to go train to be a pastor. And the enemy didn't want that because they knew that then there was going to be 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 more years of me preaching the gospel, and they didn't want to see that. They didn't want to hear that. So they were going to do anything they could to try to redirect my path, and they were going to use fear and intimidation to do it. You see, if you live a lukewarm life, The demons aren't going to bother you. They've got no reason to. They've got you right where they want you. But if you start showing yourself that you're going to be a force to be reckoned with, then all of a sudden they get nervous. Psalm 34 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. He will deliver you from your fears, but it doesn't mean he removes your problems. In Psalm 23, one of the most famous passages, it says, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. And so God says, I'm going to walk with you. We're going to walk together through this. Fix your eyes on Jesus. I'm going to deliver you from your fear, but that process is going to involve you facing your fear head on. 
So this morning, what are you afraid of? I want you to identify your fear, and I want you to respond with the truth. You should have gotten a little piece of paper walking in. If not, there's going to be some people in the back who have extras. There's a little perforated part. And on the top, the small part, I want you to write what your fear is. Because some of you are afraid of being alone, even though the truth is that God has designed you for a relationship with him and other people. Some of you are afraid of repeating your parents' mistakes, but you aren't your parents. And whatever their story was, that doesn't mean that that's what your story has to be. Some of you are afraid of failing. Some of you are afraid that you're not good enough, that you won't live up to others' perceived expectations. Galatians says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or God? Or am I trying to please people? If I'm still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. There's a lot of different fears that we have. And there's a couple of antonyms, there's a couple of opposites to fear. And I'd say they're peace and truth. And so I want you to write your fear on top. And I want you to then write the truth or the action that you need to do to face that fear so that fear is no longer something that's going to control you anymore. So as the worship team comes up here, I want you to take a moment right now, pull out that piece of paper. I want you to write down your fear on top. I want you to write down that truth or that action on the bottom.